In the, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. How long does it take to get really good at something? How long does it take from the first time you might strum that first awkward chord in a guitar to being someone who's proficient at playing guitar? How long does it take from that first time you pick up a racket until you're an absolute pickleball assassin like, like Reverend Braswell? Um, how, how long does it take to get really proficient at something? According to the author Malcolm Gladwell, it takes no less, no fewer than 10,000 hours to become truly proficient at something. 10,000 hours of focused practice before you're really at the highest level of attainment. And you know, 10,000 hours, to break that down, that's about five years of full-time work, putting in 40 hours, 40 hours a week to become truly proficient at something. In a, in a worldly sense, um, there's a principle that goes something along the lines of you're only going to get out of something what you put into it. The Bible even expresses this idea in similar language by saying you will reap what you sow. And to a certain extent, that is a truism about life. If you want to become proficient at guitar or pickleball or anything else, it's going to depend on how much focused and worthwhile practice you put into becoming better at that activity. But even though, even though that's true, there are things in life that don't work that way. And one of the lessons of the parable that we're examining today from the Gospel of St. Matthew is that that is not how the kingdom of heaven works. The kingdom of heaven does not operate on the principle of you get out of it what you put into it. But that's not to say that the concept of effort is alien from the Christian life either. It's not to say that becoming a Christian is just sort of putting out your wings and cruising in for the landing without any effort required on your part. That's what St. Paul's epistle reminds us today of, right? That the, that the Christian life is a life of effort. It is a life of exertion. It is a life of training. We're on Septuagesima Sunday today, which is more or less the pre-Lenten season. So our readings are trying to gear us up for that Lenten time of year, which is a time of supposed to be a time of intense spiritual training, a time when we redouble our efforts to engage in what are sometimes called the spiritual disciplines, uh, engaging in things like uh, fasting and prayer and Bible reading, acts of charity, that sort of thing. It's a time to redouble our efforts at leading the Christian life. And those efforts will bear fruit. There's no doubt about it. But I think it's interesting that the lectionary pairs that reading from the epistle about effort with a gospel that reminds us that even though... Uh, we are to engage in effort, and those efforts will bear fruit. There is a dimension of the kingdom of heaven that can't be captured just by that formula of you get out what you put in. 
And so let's start examining this parable. And if you have a pew Bible with you and you want to turn to Matthew 20, there's a little bit of context from right before Matthew 20 that I think is helpful for interpreting this parable. So I'm actually going to start in uh, the end of chapter 19 today, outside of our, the gospel reading in the Book of Common Prayer. So Jesus, Jesus has um, just uh, told the disciples that it is hurt, it's uh, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Um, and the disciples say, how is that possible? Um, how, who can be saved then? And Jesus replies, um, with, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then in verse 27 of chapter 19, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Peter's saying, we've put in all this effort, we've put in all this work, we've forsaken all these things, we've turned away from family and property and, and, and any number of other sacrifices we've had to make. What do we get in exchange for that? What are, what's what's the, our position going to be like in the kingdom of heaven? And in verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But, verse 30 is very interesting here, but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Which, if you remember, is also a refrain from the parable today. The parable is unpacking this idea that their, that their first shall be last, and the last shall be first, or many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So this parable is really an expansion of and a commentary on a point that Jesus is trying to make to St. Peter at the end of the previous chapter. And the uh, great commentator J.C. Ryle, I think, brings out some aspects of this that I think he said better than I could have. So I'm going to read a little bit from his commentary on Matthew's Gospel. Now we must bear in mind that Peter was a Jew. Like most Jews, he had probably, probably been brought up in much ignorance as to God's purposes respecting the salvation of the Gentiles. In fact, we know from the, from the Acts that it required a vision from heaven to take that ignorance away. Furthermore, we must bear in mind that Peter and his fellow disciples were weak in faith and knowledge. They were probably apt to attach a great importance to their own sacrifices for Christ's sake and inclined to self-righteousness and self-conceit. Both these points our Lord knew well. He therefore speaks this parable for the special benefit of Peter and his companions. He read their hearts. He saw what spiritual medicine those hearts required and supplied it without delay. In a word, he checked their rising pride and taught them humility. So this is a problem in the history of Jesus' ministry and in the history of the early church that this parable addresses. And it's the problem 
that if I had to sum it up in a phrase, is the elder brother syndrome. Uh, I'm, I'm a younger brother, so I don't, you know, I like that term, <laughs> the elder brother syndrome. Those elder, it's always the elder brothers that are the problem. Um, but this is, this is a, a theme throughout scripture. It's, it's often the younger brother that's selected in preference to the older brother, and often the older brother is none too happy about it. Um, recall the, um, recall the, the parable of the prodigal son and how when the younger brother has wasted his inheritance and finally come back home with his tail between his legs um, to his father, he's celebrated with a feast. And the only person who's not happy about it is the elder brother who says, I've been working for you this entire time and you have, you have uh, given him a feast in preference to me. And similarly, in this parable, we see the elder brother syndrome among the workers who had worked longer and felt that because they had worked longer, they deserved more than the ones who were, as it were, Johnny-come-latelys to, the, uh, to this agreement with the, with the owner of the vineyard. But that's operating under the assumption that what we get out of the kingdom of heaven is just what we get put into it, that our rewards are going to be commensurate with our efforts, no more and no less. And that was the kind of pride and vainglory that made many in the Jewish community at the time of the early church reject the Christianity and reject the gospel. It was taking these Gentile Johnny-come-latelys and saying they were equal in the covenant and equal in God's eyes to the chosen people who had for centuries and millennia labored to be faithful to that covenant. But the ultimate measure of who was in the kingdom of God and who was outside of it was faith in the Messiah, in the Lord Jesus. It wasn't who your father worshipped or who his father worshipped or how long you had been in the covenant or anything like that. Um, the, that long, those long centuries of history did not entitle anybody to a greater reward or a greater position. In fact, as we know, in, in a perfectly tragic way, um, that pride and vainglory kept people out of the kingdom who might have been in it but who were obsessed with their pride in their lineage and in their nation and in their traditions and their family history and could not abase themselves to regard themselves as the equals of Gentile sinners that had been, um, had been brought into that covenant. So in a way, an even stronger, an even stronger tragedy than the, what we see in the parable today or what we see in the parable of the prodigal son, not just being envious of these Gentiles that are being brought into the covenant, but saying, no, if the Gentiles are in, I'm out. Which, as we know, is just to, is just to um, put yourself under condemnation. If, you, if you're not willing to accept salvation on God's own terms, then you simply won't receive it. And to be honest, I think we can understand the, the, the perspective of the Jewish people maybe a little bit more than our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers or previous generations. We're starting to become, as it were, the elder brethren in the church 
if you look at it from a global perspective. I want to read to you a, another quote from a theologian named uh, Peter Lightheart. And I'm not reading it to you because I necessarily agree with every single word of it. There's certainly some parts of this quote I would not wholeheartedly endorse, but I think it helps us put in perspective the sense in which the Western world and the United States in some ways has become the elder brother in, 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 terms, of the, in terms of these kinds of parables. So Peter Lightheart says, the 19th century was the British century. The 20th was the American century. We're in the 21st now, and the American century is over. That doesn't mean the U.S. will disappear. The U.S. will remain a huge player on the global stage for the foreseeable future. But the U.S. won't be able to act as if, the, as if it's the only game in town. In some corners of the world, other powers are already successfully challenging U.S. supremacy. The shift in the church's center of gravity started earlier. Between 1900 and 2010, between 1900 and 2010, so over the course of the last century, more or less, the number of Christians in Africa grew from 7.5 million to a half billion. Used to be 7.5 million Christians in Africa, now there are half a billion, more than there are in the United States. There's more Christians on the continent of Africa now than in the entire United States. Nearly half of all Africans are now Christians. In Latin America, evangelical churches have exploded, and the spirit is stirring in the Catholic Church, according to Lightheart. Today, there are Christians and churches in nearly every country. The old centers of Christendom aren't piloting the ship anymore. Both geopolitically and ecclesially, a world is ending. That doesn't mean the world is ending, for there are worlds elsewhere, and there too, Jesus is king. It's sobering to reflect on some of these facts, that there are more Christians in Africa now than there are in the United States. By some estimates, there are more countries in the country of China alone than there are in the entire United States. Just recently, even if you're looking not beyond the Anglican Communion, we have seen uh, bishops in Africa essentially come to the rescue of churches in the United States that are cleaving closely to the Bible and are trying to plot a faithful course against the theological liberalism that has infected many of the mainline churches. It's difficult not to feel sometimes that the best days of the West, the best days of the United States, may be behind us. We may continue to see decline both in religious fidelity and in religiosity and in our own national preeminence. Are you starting to feel a little bit like an elder brother yet? <laughs> Wait, how can we slip from the number one spot? We have been doing this longer. We've made these contributions for these centuries. My father's and my grandfather and, my, and his grand, great-grandfather before him. We have done so much work for the churches. We've built enormous cathedrals. We've written theological tomes. We've exp expounded and preached the Bible for lo these many centuries. How can we slip from first place? Because what you get out of the kingdom of God is not what you put into it. If God wants to hire 
the idle nations standing in the marketplace and reward them just as much as he's rewarded us and grant them a preeminence that slipped from our fingers through our own unfaithfulness, then he is sovereign and he is free to do so. We should celebrate the fact that there are so many faithful Christians in so many parts of the world right now. Not just nominal Christians, but Christians that are cleaving closely to the teachings of the scriptures against the spirit of the age. That's something to be grateful for and something to be celebrated. Let's not be like that elder brother who was envious of the feast. Let's celebrate alongside them. So this seems a little dark and depressing. Where is the good news in all of this? How can we come on a, down on a lighter note? But there is good news in this. If the reward we got from the kingdom of heaven was just measured by what we put into it, we would not receive the gift that we are bound to receive. We are promised nothing short of salvation. And there's no way that we could achieve that through our own efforts. We are promised a reward far beyond anything we could have worked for. And we should be grateful for that. It's not a matter if, um, it's not a matter of seeing if our efforts measure up. It's God's grace that measures out the gift that he wants to give to us. And so we are promised a reward beyond mere desert, beyond mere reciprocity. And thank God for it because we could have never earned that. So let us pray for a spirit of humility and gratitude let us be thankful for the gifts that we have received at the hands of a generous and good God. Even as we press forward with our efforts, as we prepare to put forth our best efforts and to grow spiritually during this Lenten season, let's remember that it's not our work or efforts that earn our salvation, but it is a free gift of he who gives it. Amen. Amen. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee.